G'day, welcome to Lunch Money, your online and social media home for workouts, special situations and capital raising professionals. My name's Nick Samios, I'm the fund manager and director here at Hermes Capital and I am the host of Lunch Money. Um, today, we firstly, thank you very much for joining us live on Monday. We've made the switch from Fridays. Fridays are for lunching now, uh, now that uh, we're all allowed out of the office and I'll be traveling to Melbourne next week. So it's all very exciting. Um, today, we are going to talk about the trials and tribulations of one Ferrari lasso. Uh, what is a Ferrari lasso, you may ask? Well, it's a car that looks like this. Um, that's that's it. So it's <laughs> it is a Ferrari there in the showroom. I'm told it goes very fast. Um, and uh, it was recently sold, and, and it's a very interesting story because uh, there were various parties and people that thought they had claim to this lasso. And as a lender, or if you're in uh, corporate restructuring and you're in the business of uh, getting your hands on assets and selling them, uh, I think there's some cautionary tales in here to be told by our two guests uh, who were. Um, uh, fundamental to, the, to the, the the sale of this vehicle, Ian Hyman and Richard Rourke. And I'm going to bring them both on right now. Uh, okay, g'day, gentlemen. Good morning, Nicholas. Um, we'll start with you, Ian, just very quickly. You've been uh, you've been quite busy. Ian Hyman is the uh, managing director of Hyman's Asset Management. Um, so, what is it? Is it valuations? Is it auctions? What, what's what's the go? Well, mate, if you can get assets uh, to sell, that's that's uh, that's absolutely the place to be. But valuations are, are our mainstay, and at the moment, it's crazy out there. So, property side, uh, the development uh, development market is uh, as hot as I've ever seen it. Um, land subdivisions are huge. Um, uh, asset prices are still very, very strong. Although in some areas, they're starting to taper off a little bit as supply and demand and and the supply. Some of the, some of the Supply chain issues are easing slightly. Um, I don't want to overdo that, but in some cases, slightly. So, some of the motor vehicle prices we've seen in some brands are going to probably start just coming back a little bit to the market uh, over the next sort of three to six months, um, and maybe in the longer term, obviously for for the more prominent brands like Toyota, which have, are still incredibly hard to get uh, at the current time. Okay, uh, so it's mainly uh, private lenders instructing you for property valves. That's 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 the main game. That's the bread and butter at the moment. Look, I think it is. Um, we focus on the non-bank lending market because they're so much more flexible. Uh, you, your relationship as a value with the lender is much more of a partnership than with the, the major financial institutions just by virtue of size. So from our point of view, we see ourselves as, as basically consultant value. We want to be part of the team and to give you the best advice. So the only way we can do that is if we can talk to the right people. In the non-bank lending space, we can do that. All right. Well, uh, the good news is, Ian, that both of us uh, can physically travel to Melbourne, so uh, we can actually sit across at a real desk, not a virtual desk, with Richard Rort. How are you going, Richard? What's it like? Uh, what's it like down there? Uh, the last week? Uh, it's just a relief to um, starting to open up again. My um, youngest son uh, is a first year, or just completed his first year as a dentist in Wangaratta, and. Uh, He's been able to come to Melbourne this weekend. So when I had breakfast with him this morning. I was 65 uh, during the week, and we even managed to go out for dinner on Friday night. Oh, that's fantastic. So, that is fantastic. 
Yeah. Oh, that, that, is, that is a good story. Now, listen, uh, Richard, you are a partner at Hamilton Murphy. Uh, you are a corporate and personal uh, insolvency and restructuring uh, advisor. Uh, obviously, the, the whole corporate restructuring market's been fairly quiet. But um, what are you seeing much? What, what, what's the nature of inquiry that you're getting at the moment? Uh, mostly in hospitality, Nick. Um, uh, the hard reality for anybody in hospitality is simply that they haven't been able to trade for the better part of two years. They've no doubt had some rent relief. Um, they've certainly all had uh, government assistance and federal government assistance, but um, I don't know really whether or not that sort of assistance, which has already soaked up the available funds, is going to be sufficient to keep hospitality fit and well over the next 12 months. The next 12, 12 months will certainly be a, um, uh, a cornerstone as to who's fit enough to be able to uh, reopen and trade and pay off old debts. And it's going to be very, very, very difficult for anybody in hospitality at all. I guess it's, it's interesting because I know the last time I was in Melbourne, it was after the first major lockdowns and and even then you'd walk down to Grave Street and a lot of the cafes were closed uh, as seemingly for good. But of course, if someone's closed, that gives an opportunity to someone else to open up, I, I guess. But do you is most of the inquiry you're getting in the hospo space, is it people that are just looking to, 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 to throw in the keys and walk away or are they looking to find ways of, of uh, licking their wounds and keep going? Um, all of the opinion that um, Christmas this year won't be a saviour um, and they really don't think that they're going to be able to survive beyond Christmas and um, directors say that they already owe so much in employee and time. The, the, the real, there's a real practical problem, uh, Nick, because all businesses that have survived, um, be it an office, uh, be it anybody who employs anybody full-time, nobody's really been able to take annual leave. And all of that annual leave is really going to fall due basically on Christmas Eve. Um, and every business, every business uh, is going to have a real cash flow issue as to how they're going to be able to pay annual leave to so many staff when they've not been able to trade for such a long time they won't have the money in the bank okay well that's interesting our friends at feg must be sharpening their pencils and uh and uh, getting ready for all that all right listen let's uh who wants to start us off well will you start us off richard to, to, um you tell us about this ferrari lasso you you came um, to uh it's, it initially didn't think it was yours. It was part of an insolvency. Yes. Um, I was appointed administrator by the secured creditor on about the 20th of December 2019. Um, and we knew that one of the obligations of the company was to pay um, monthly funds to um, the financier, which was BMW Finance. Uh, each month. We couldn't find the Ferrari. We didn't get any real assistance um, as to the whereabouts of the Ferrari. So in about February 2020, uh, 
we issued a notice of disclaimer to BMW Finance um, to relieve me as the administrator from making any further payments on it on the basis that it probably didn't have any equity. Okay, so just 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 to sort of um, dumb that down for simple financiers like me, for example, you, you you're you're the administrator of a company. You've identified that somewhere there's a Ferrari. It could be worth a bit of money, but it's under finance to BMW. You've got monthly payments to BMW for this car, uh, and you've looked at it. And you've gone, you know what? This car seemingly owes BMW a lot more than what it's worth. I don't want anything to do with it. So you've disclaimed it. Yeah, I think at the time uh, we thought that the Ferrari was probably worth about four hundred thousand dollars, and um, uh, and the administrator really has to make a call if there's equity in a motor vehicle or any asset. Uh, he will uh, pay the monthly obligations, repossess the asset, and sell it, um, and whatever equity is left. Uh, in that asset, or be it motor vehicle or anything else, uh, becomes available for the benefit of creditors to receive a dividend. Um, if you're, but that only works if you're looking at any asset with a positive equity. If you're looking at an asset with negative equity, in other words, the payout is greater than what the asset is worth, um, uh, administrators and liquidators will disclaim the, the asset, saying to the financier, I'm handing it back to you, it's all yours, you go and find it, but I don't have any financial interest in it. Um, because if there's negative equity, if we take possession of it and auction it um, or dispose of it, uh, the administrator or liquidator would be on the hook for those monthly payments uh, and he could assume liability for any shortfall. So administrators and liquidators always look for positive equity in an asset uh, for which they'll sell themselves and provide the surplus funds to creditors. If there's negative equity, uh, administrators and liquidators issue what's called a notice of disclaimer and hand it back to the financier and say, it's it's all yours, which was- I, I guess otherwise otherwise you're using funds that could go to the creditors, so they get a little, bit of, a little bit of a distribution. Uh, yep. to, to, to pay the to, to pay for an asset that, that there's no joint. And I'm just curious, years ago, years and years and years ago, I mean, Chris Wikes is involved in this story to tell you how long ago it was. You know, I remember that we were involved in a matter and there was a bunch of trucks and the, the trucks were under finances at George Bank. And then the trucks got stolen before Chris was able to disclaim them. And uh, and then they reappeared. Uh, they re reappeared up at uh, Razorback Ridge or something. And and Chris told the bank, "Listen, we found the trucks are up at Razorback Ridge. They're your problem." I, I, I was talking to someone the other day, a financier, who they stick tracking devices in in these trucks. Do you, are you seeing much of that these days? Or when you yeah, think, look, it's certainly uh, been looked at by a number of funders, and and um, there are a number of companies that provide that service. That. that the big issue is that um, obviously it is not impossible to remove these trackers and whilst at the point that they disconnect you will see or the, the person that's monitoring them will see where that is, once the truck which is on wheels is moved um, then you've lost the ability to find it again at some point in the future. So it, we've advised a couple of funders that we work for that the, the benefits uh, really do outweigh, sorry the cost do outweigh the benefits uh, in the sense that anyone who's devious enough to um, uh, to uh, remove the trackers, um, they'll move the truck as well. So by the time you get there, 
you won't know, you know, you won't know where it is. Okay. All right. Well, then the next thing. So then, Richard, you at this point in time, you think that the car is under finance to BMW. You've got no interest in it. Is the next thing that happens that you somehow find out that BMW have maybe their paperwork wasn't too spot on? Um, yes, we did, and it was quite accidental. Um, in May, given that we were appointed in December 2019, last year around April or May, uh, for lots of reasons, we made an application to the federal court uh, to issue a warrant uh, on the premises and um, uh, to seize books and records. And um, that was the, the case has actually got widespread publicity. Um, but in many respects, the federal court um, was not comfortable with me serving a warrant and then seizing a motor vehicle that I'd previously disclaimed. But but, uh, how, but you'd, you'd somehow accidentally found out that the... How did you find out that BMW security was no good? What, did, they, did they muck up a serial number or they just failed to register? Um, uh, yeah, they did there. Um, certainly the, um, that, that wasn't at the time. At the time, uh, we did, when we served the warrant in April or May last year, we still didn't know the whereabouts of the Ferrari. Uh, we didn't know, uh, what color it was. We didn't know anything about it. Um, but, uh, as it turned out, um, uh, the director of the company um, came back to the premises as we were closing the premises back down that night and rechanging the locks that we had effectively broken to have access to the premises to execute the warrant. Um, and it really turned on whether or not I'd executed the, the warrant in order to seize an asset, which was the car, after I had already disclaimed it and said, it's not mine. Yeah. Um, and it was only after that, that we discovered that the registration on the PPSR, the, uh, the, um, the register, uh, appeared to be faulty right. um, and it really turned on whether or not I had executed a warrant to in order to seize a Ferrari after I turned around and said I have no interest in it and I've disclaimed it. Um, then the legal argument was well if BMW's registration for its security over the car was faulty, um, what happens to the car? And uh, the financier took a position, well, if the registration was faulty, they owned the car. And my position was, well, the financier can never own a car. Um, the financier's position can never be greater than simply having security over the vehicle. And if it's unsecured, what will happen to the car? Uh, is the car uh, property of the company? Um, the financiers said that they own it, which 
I don't think any financier can own uh, an asset. The best that they can have is security over the asset. And uh, as things turned out um, in, in fact, on the 13th of May last year, uh, the federal court held that BMW's security was in fact faulty and it remained an asset of the trust. Um, okay, well, be, well, before you go into that, before you go into that, I mean, the thing is, the, P, the PPSR, the Personal Property Security Register, it, it is hard and fast. If, you, if, you, if you've if you got digits in the wrong place and you don't register it correctly, uh, you're gone. Are you seeing much of that sort of thing, Ian, Are you, where you're acting for well, financiers? One well, it's, it's, it's not rampant, but it's not unusual. So um, we probably see it once or twice a quarter. Um and ironically, it's generally one of the major financial institutions that has, and I classify BMW as one of those, um, but, but also the banks, um, a, a number of banks over, over time. And that's why, in many cases, liquidators actually want to take possession of the leased assets so that we can check uh, the VIN numbers, et cetera, and ensure that they do match up to the PPSR register. Because when you least expect it, particularly in an official liquidation where you've got very little in the way of assets, that could be... Uh, the, the way that A, you get paid, and B, you can make a distribution to creditors as part of the process. Yeah, okay. All right, and then, Richard, so then it, it was, uh, without getting too deep into the, the sort of legalities, so then uh, it turns out that, that you think that the ownership's reverted to a, a company that you're in control of at this point? Uh, at that point, uh, Justice Anderson and the Federal Court said that the Ferrari was an asset of the trust and property of the trust. Um, but I was only, at that point, liquidator of the company that acted as trustee of the trust. Yeah. So um, we still needed orders to be made uh, that the liquidator of the corporate company, myself, um, had the legal right to sell assets of the trust. So we made an application to the federal court to be appointed by the court as receivers and managers of the trust. Uh, and that happened about a week later. Okay, so you, you, okay, because there's always that there's always that that complication. Now, then there was another financier are you able to, that, that 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 sort of stepped in and out. Well, yeah, there was another secured creditor, not BMW, but somebody else. Uh, yes, there, there was certainly a there was originally the original secured creditor, uh, and uh, I was appointed as administrator by the original secured creditor. Right. And uh, his loan was eventually discharged pretty recently right. by right. the director pursuant yeah. to personal guarantees. Yeah. Um, and uh, to some degree now, the director claims that she's subrogated to stand in the shoes of the secured creditor. Yeah. Um, and that might mean that uh, the proceeds of the car might become because a car is a fixed asset and yep. subject to a fixed charge. Yep. Um, and if that's the case, the proceeds might of the car still might follow through to the secured creditor, which is now the person that's paid out the secured creditor's debt. Yeah, I understand. So if you're a borrower or if you're a guarantor uh, and, as guar and, and, and there's some sort of issue with the loan, the guarantor pays... The loan out on behalf of the borrower, whether or not that borrower, that in this case it could be the borrower's company. Uh, sorry, the borrower could be a company, 
and the director is a guarantor and they've paid out that company debt, then they are entitled uh, in some circumstances to, to subrogate or to, to, to uh, step into the shoes of the financier. That the, so whatever rights the financier had that the guarantor personally took care of, they go, well, I've taken over your debt. I haven't paid it out effectively. They're saying I've taken it over, I suppose. And that's and I guess yeah. there has to be certain certain circumstances for that to 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 uh, to, to be live. Um, okay, so eventually the car. Tell us a little bit about the auction process for this car, Ian. I mean, car, used car prices have been, you know, escalating. Uh, yeah, I've was... heard stories of dealers hang, of, of used car dealers hanging on to stock because they're almost uh, they're almost hanging on to stock just because it's going to be worth more tomorrow than it was yesterday. So yeah. I'm not aware of dealers hanging on to stock, but um, but certain, there are certain brands uh, that have definitely, um, you know, where supply has been um, significantly short of the current demand, particularly in the trading market. So where we've had a distortion, apart from all the global supply chain issues that everyone's heard about, uh, you've also had this instant uh, asset write-off, which very conveniently allows, you know, any tradie, for example, you go out and buy a new car and write it off immediately for tax purposes. So you've had this incredible increase in demand for four-wheel drives and utes, uh, and that, to a large extent, is probably the equivalent of some of the supply chain issues we're also experiencing out of places like Japan and the US. So it's a really interesting conundrum. I think um, we're seeing that some of that demand has now been satisfied. Um, the, the instant asset write-off has now been around for you know over 12 months, um, and therefore most people that are, that are intending to buy a new vehicle uh, who may not have been in the market traditionally have, have now been satisfied. Um, but we still have significant demand, particularly for Toyota. But if you go to the prestige brands, in most cases, um, short of the you know the normal waiting list you'd expect, if, if there is one, uh, they're pretty much available um, you know now as, as we speak. So if you're looking for you know for a new Jag or uh, you know a higher level Mercedes Benz, uh, you can pull you can unless you want to customise it, and that's a different ballgame. But if you're just looking at something off the shelf, you can probably get to a dealer or certainly find a dealer around the country that can supply that vehicle for you. Well, yeah, well, we won't we won't dive too much into that. I will make the observation that uh, I've been looking to buy a used car <coughs> and, uh, you know, and I've got this alert, uh, you know, from car sales to, to say that, you know, there's a, a car that I'm interested in to become available. It's a brand new car. And so they're now flogging the, the brand new cars, and the brand new cars are only marginally dearer than the used ones. And and when I rang the dealer, they they seem to be uh, yeah, they seem to be keen to do a deal. I didn't I didn't even ask for a deal, and the guys going, we we can do a deal. But <laughs> so there might be some deflationary pressures there, and we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later on. But just tell us about some of the special challenges in selling a car like a Ferrari Lasso. Well, look, um, you know, we partner with Mannheim on the, in a number of areas and certainly the prestige car side of it, uh, we do. They, they run a weekly prestige car sale. So we, we basically did, a, did the marketing for the vehicle and, um, and worked within their uh, online system. Um, and look, we, we thought the time that the vehicle was valued uh, was just about the time that Ferrari announced the discontinuance of this model. Um, we're still not sure, you know, what impact that has had. Um, but uh, you know, we knew it was going to be somewhere between you know three and four hundred thousand uh, dollars in that area. It's, it's ended up selling for just under you know three hundred and sixty, including the buyer's premium. Um, so it, it's it's still a for a four-year-old vehicle that's now been discontinued. Um, the fact that they're only you know ten or eleven sold in Australia, only you know three hundred sold worldwide, it never it never really took off. Um, and 
one of the things I think really marked was a mark against this vehicle was the big blue stripe um, down the middle of the vehicle, which I think would have um, probably put off quite a few people. Uh, um, it's it's not what I would consider to be you know your traditional uh, Ferrari. That um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a showy, glitzy sort of uh, a car. It's got a lot of punch. It's a it's a beautiful piece of machinery. Um, as only the Italians it's painted like a Ford Falcon. There isn't it. Uh, yeah, look, you could be cynical and sort of suggest that they knocked off the fort. No, I wouldn't do that. Um, but, um, it's it's certainly, uh, if you like that sort of thing, it's fantastic. But I, I spoke to a number of buyers and they were put off by the blue stripe and obviously you, you, you wouldn't remove it. Um, that would absolutely affect the value of the vehicle. But look, we had something like um, uh, 20, 20 different buyers on the vehicle through the bidding process. Um, which is, uh, you know, for, for any vehicle at an auction sale is, 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 is substantial. Uh, and then we had a couple of bidders fighting out over the last sort of uh, 20 odd, 20 odd thousand dollars. Made quite a few calls after the sale. Um, and it did take some time. Uh, Rich hasn't got into the final, the final hurdles we experienced in actually selling the car. But there was another hurdle on top of that uh, where the uh, director, director obviously uh, put a claim over the vehicle after having stood in the shoes of the of the original secured creditor, but once that clearance came through, um, the vehicle's just recently been paid, and I'm anxiously hoping that you know early next week we'll be able to send the funds to Richard. Uh, to right, well, I do have another question for Richard, but before I get to that, we we we, we have received a, a cheeky question on LinkedIn from Darren Anderson, and it just reminds me that we're giving <laughs> away a couple of books, uh, a couple of Mike House books. Uh, for for good questions, and please let there be a better question than Darren Anderson's question, which was, "Is there any truth to the rumor? Uh, is there any truth to the rumor that a certain insolvency practitioner purchased a Ferrari to add to his collection?" Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, people who are watching this live on LinkedIn will be able to read that comment. But I can say unequivocal, unequivocally that. No insolvency practitioner has bid on this motor car. Okay, excellent. Uh, just very quickly, if we could just quickly show those books again. So Mike House was a great uh, a great guest uh, about a month or so ago, and these books are fantastic. I've got a couple of copies myself, and uh, the, the way they're illustrated and the way they tell the story is really fabulous. Um, so, Richard, this uh, when you told me the story originally, you, you, you disclaimed the asset, and we've been through that process, but then you've reclaimed it. Is that a common thing, or I, I, I've never heard of that before? Is that something that, 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 that's ever happened before? Uh, <clears throat> it's very, very interesting, Nick, because it's very, very well known in the insolvency industry that you can undisclaim an asset that you've already disclaimed. But uh, I thought it was actually quite easy and quite common. But uh, that's a fascinating thing about insolvency. You still learn something. Well, I used to learn something and take it home every day. Um, at this stage of my life, I probably learned something new and take it home about once a fortnight. And I was surprised that as much as liquidators have the right to undisclaim an asset that they've previously disclaimed, actually how rare it was. And um, uh, solicitors on both sides um, uh, really had trouble coming up with case law. So uh, in some respects, it really made new law in the federal court so, so you're uh, right you've now been immortalized in uh, in case law you're a precedent yes oh, very um, good i have had lawyers try to use me as a precedent so <laughs> please don't i don't i don't want to become a precedent please no <laughs> okay but, but nick um 
the, the actual sale of the car during COVID presented its whole brand new world of problems. How do you yeah. sell a... I mean, we're not selling a, um, a Commodore or a Falcon. How do you sell an exclusive car like a Ferrari uh, during COVID? And uh, poor Ian Hyman was tearing his hair out because um, Sydney went into lockdown and that's where the car was based. Um, and nobody could see the, the, the car. Nobody could walk around it. Um, maybe you guys can tell me why if the bloke's looking at a car, we always have to open the bonnet. Yeah. And <laughs> we have to walk around and we have to open the bonnet. I, I don't, for, from my point of view, I have no idea why I open a bonnet. Uh, yeah. is it, is, is, I go, oh, yeah, there's an engine there. That's good. Um, but what do all blokes look at when we open a bonnet? I've got no idea. Yeah, no, uh, no, no. I, 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 I'm selling a car, so that, and uh, a guy came to look at it, and he said, "Can you pop the bonnet?" And I'm like, bloody hell, how do I do that? And, uh, <laughs> and I think it's a set. So I've had the car for three years. I've seen under the hood twice. Darren Anderson makes the comment: you can only do, you can only uh, undisclaim it if someone else has not relied on your disclaimer to their detriment. But I guess that didn't happen in this case. But I was going to say we, that as a yeah, go on. But we couldn't sell the car in Sydney because everything was in lockdown. Yeah. So, Ian, you should mention uh, we tried to sell, in fact, we tried to transport the car to Brisbane uh, and then we looked at transporting the car from Sydney to Melbourne um, so that uh, people could walk around the car for cities that weren't in lockdown and be able to um, ask to pop the bonnet and have a look and double check that there's an engine in there or that it's got a dipstick or a radiator cap. God knows why blokes always. Yeah. I'm the same. I have no idea why if I was going to buy a car, why I would want the, the to pop the bonnet. I don't know what I'd expect to find. I don't know. I, 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 I don't think I've, I don't think I've test driven a car. I've bought lots of cars. I don't even test drive the bloody things. But listen, um, Richard, one of the things that, that insolvency practitioners have in common with people such as myself is you need to learn to catch the third spear. I don't know if you've ever heard this one before, but someone, as an insolvency practitioner, someone throws a spear at you and you catch it in the left hand and then they throw another spear at you and you catch it in the right hand. It's that third spear that you've got to be able to catch when your hands are full with the first two. Is that so That's probably a fair observation. Now, there was a final sting in the tail with this one or was there a, was there a third spear? Um, to some degree, there there is, but um, if you can't talk about it, you can't talk about no, it. No, yeah, we're still negotiating different matters with the director. Um, uh, I, uh, I I think it would be wise that everybody kept that to themselves. But okay, there yeah. could be a third spear. <laughs> okay, now Ian, uh, so were you were you happy with uh, in the end? You were happy with the result. Well, I think so. I mean, we ended up moving it to Melbourne, of course, that Melbourne subsequently went into lockdown, um, which happened very quickly. If you recall, um, it, it looked like they uh, had very low cases down there and, um, and they might be able to avoid that. But um, unfortunately, we got it there within a week uh, from, from recollection that um, the lockdown occurred. So we decided to proceed um, on, the, on the basis that we had taken a lot of footage of the car um, uh, we had 360-degree sort of photogra photographic evidence in very high resolution. Uh, we had full mechanical reports uh, prepared. Uh, the car had been, uh, thanks to Richard's diligence, he had uh, made sure that the car was serviced 
during uh, his ownership period, which needed to happen. Uh, so the logbook's are up to date. Uh, the car was in immaculate condition, only having travelled 16,000 kilometres, um, not including the trip to Melbourne. Obviously, that was done on a car carrier. But um, look, we, we were, personally, I, I was fairly pleased with certainly the interest that the car generated. Um, on the pricing side, there's never been one to auction in, in Australia. Um, it's about a, a $600,000 car, roughly new. Um, so four years old, um, uh, with a bit, and a little bit unusual, only 10 or 11 in Australia. So you could say that might have give a collectible. I thought maybe it would become a collectible, and it may still do in the next you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years. Uh, but the reality is that um, we've achieved, after four years, about a bit over half of its uh, a bit a bit over half of its replacement cost. Okay, all right. Well, look. Uh, it sounds like the epilogue to that story is yet to be told, and we'll leave that for another day. Um, look, I just wanted to quickly get through, get your thoughts on some of on the, the new. Sorry, Richard. On the cup. Do you want to talk well, about the milk tomorrow? Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you, we'll finish up with that. We'll get your tip on that last. But the first, the, the, of course, Melbourne Cup Day is famous. Um, for uh, for the Reserve Bank setting interest rates. And so I just want to go to slide two, uh, and I want to show you this news headline. Uh, Terry McCran, the real interest rate race starts on Cup Day. Now, I don't think that anyone's expecting the Reserve Bank uh, to lift interest rates tomorrow, but there, you know, some pundits are saying that there's three rate rises uh, factored into the markets uh, already next year, right? So 2022... Uh, we're talking about rate rises, not 23 or 24. The reason for that is slide three. Um, you know, depending on who you listen to and who you believe, we do have inflation. Um, pressures mount on central banks as inflation expectations surge. Now, we're all experiencing ex inflation anecdotally. Um, uh, there are some economists, of course, who deny that it's ever going to happen and that money printing can be done with impunity. Um, now, what's interesting, when you combine these interest rate rise, the, the trouble is how does the Reserve Bank battle inflation? I mean, when I was a lad studying economics at school, you know, if there was inflation, the Reserve Bank, you know, the government, the, the interest rates would go up and that would temper the inflation. Um, and we were talking a little bit earlier, Richard, about, you know, the recession that we had to have with Paul Keating and the effervescent economy and interest rates going up then. But now we've got the, the, the uh, slide four we had Chris Joy, who is a highly respected uh, journo there at the AFR. He's also a fund manager himself. And I've got to say that Chris is normally bullish. So when everybody else says that prices are going to go down, Chris is normally the one that says, no, 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 house prices are going to go up. Now, he said that if interest rates go up, and I think that his maths was done on a 1% increase in rates, I'd have to double check. But if interest rates go up, we could see house prices fall as much as 20%. Now... I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, Ian. What, what do you? How are you sort of taking all of this in? How does it affect valuations? Look, um, I, I think um, interest rates are um, really put us in a very difficult position over the next one to two years. Certainly, as valuers, um, the challenge for us is to ensure that when the correction comes, and it's going to be, and I believe it'll be substantial. Um, that we're not held there with a stack of valuations which lenders try to sheet back to the valuers, not just us, but all the major valuation firms. We did see after the GFC that a number of banks in particular decided to um, uh, tackle their, their valuers based on 
valuations have been done prior to the GFC and, and as a result, there were a number of court actions. Um, banks actually lost a number of those cases um, because the market before the GFC was obviously vastly different to uh, the market after the GFC. And I think we're going to see that again. Uh, we're constantly saying to uh, the lenders that we value for both on the, not just the, the property side, but also p &E, those people that are even on the plant and equipment side that are lending now, if, they, if they're funding used equipment in particular, there's a real chance that in uh, you know one, two, three years' time, that you won't have just the normal depreciation on the, when you sell those assets if you need to repossess them. Uh, it could be uh, another 30% more because in some cases, values have gone up by you know 30% uh, in, in this period and that's what the funders are funding on. Um, so for the first time ever in the transport uh, area, uh, area we, we sold some trucks just recently where uh, two of the major banks refused to fund the purchases, even though they've been purchased at auction, on the basis that they were above market value. Um, and, and what they're trying to say is that basically you've just sold some older trucks that are actually almost in line with new price and we're not prepared to um, take that extra risk of the exposure if uh, you can't complete on this um, finance transaction in four years' time. So that's the first time that I've seen that um, as you know, in this current um, sort of environment during the GFC. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. On the property side, it, there, there's no hint yet of the non-bank lending sector uh, pulling back. It's still full, you know, full charge, uh, get as much money out there as possible. But in many cases, they're also lending on, you know, the lending private investors' money. So the private investors have literally got very few places to, to plump that money. There's huge amount, amounts of cash around at the moment. Um, the number of the proliferation of family offices has gone through the roof. So well, the thing is, uh, there was an article, I think today, there was some speculation that because there is this expectation that interest rates are going to go up, people are, are uh, the, the old uh, fear of missing out uh, and people may be buying now so they can lock in their rates. Well, I was talking earlier, Richard, uh, I mean, certainly uh, we're, we're all old enough to remember the recession we had to have and that was a time when there was high interest rates, uh, there was certainly inflation uh, although I think they might, they finally managed to kill it off uh, with the interest rates were so high. Um, but that were, you know, where you, I guess a couple of things that are holding back corporate, you know, the restructures and the VAs and the insolvencies at the moment is, as Ian just pointed out, there is so much super cheap money around it's and it's readily available. The other thing is if you've got high asset prices, then people are able to borrow against those asset prices rather than restructure their businesses. They can get their hands on money and, and sort of go back to the casino table and have another punt. I mean, what 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 do you think? Uh, a couple of things. Ian's quite wrong uh, when he says um, uh, banks are rejecting money on the basis that somebody's paid too much for an asset. Uh, I think we are seeing a real change in bank lending where banks for the last 25 years have lent on equity. They've lent on security, not on ability to necessarily repay. And I think the old fashioned way of banking uh, is now coming back to the fore where banks will no longer just lend on security, they are going to lend on ability to pay, which is what they should have always done. But for 25 years, they've lent on security and, uh, and not been all that interested on ability to repay the loan on a monthly basis. Uh, I think the banks are turning back the clock to the way that they used to bank in the 1980s. But equally, um, uh, I completely disagree with the financial review article that 
a rise in interest rates may see house prices plummet 20%. Uh, was it Nick Coombs? Oh, Bill Coote. That was Bill Coote up in Queensland. Yeah, Bill oh, Coote. Right. I, I agree. They don't often go down. No, uh, and I agree completely with Bill. Um, there is a pendulum, a seesaw. Yeah. yeah. And blokes with grey hair um, all know about the seesaw. Or uh, no hair. My, my two sons are looking for an increase in interest rates on the basis that uh, that will enable them to see a fall in housing and be able to buy a house together. Yeah. I don't think that is ever, 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 ever going to happen. Um, the pendulum between the stock market and the housing market. If interest rates are really low, stock market is always really high. And that's the way it's been for a thousand years. Nothing ever changes it. If we have inflation and you can get, instead of getting 1% interest at a bank, we can get 3% or 4% or 5%. Investing in the stock market becomes less and less and less attractive. The higher the interest rate, the lower the share market. And when you sell out of the shares, you've got to put your money somewhere else and you put it in, in housing. Yeah, well, certainly the, the, the crash of 87, uh, we were going a long way back there, but, you know, people expected the property market to collapse as well. But, of course, all the money came out of the stock market, as you say, Correct. and went into the property market. Now, that said, the property market did come off uh, in the early 90s. There's no doubt Not about right. that. But, 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 but I guess, you know, arguably it wasn't for long. But, but in, nine, in that recession, you know, there was, uh, there was uh, the term jingle mail, uh, you know, where the mail that the bankers received was jingling because it had keys in it. People were, 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 just, uh, were just giving up. But we do live in extraordinary times. Uh, we, are, we are kind of out of time. So uh, I will ask you both. Uh, well, now, Richard, you've got a tip for the Melbourne Cup, do you? Uh, I take um, oh, two things. Um, if I if it looks as though I haven't had a shave today, you're quite right. I'm trying to get a jump on some mates for the month of November, right. um, and um, so I'm unshaven in the interest of charity. Uh, and equally, uh, in the cup, I take a first four every year. I'm yep. sick and tired of getting three leagues in and not four. So I think the horse to beat is incentivised, which is going to start two to one, three to one, um, and is incredibly incredibly short for a melbourne cup um so uh, i don't think anybody can go past number two incentivize but for a first four two four 21 and 24 and if uh, two four 21 and 24 get up i won't be coming to work next week because it'll probably pay about 40 grand very and good I'll very good all right, well, we'll, we'll uh, I'll, I'll, I might have a lash at that myself with you. Ian, <laughs> uh, Ian I know that... Uh, I'm, just seen... a lover, I'm just a lover of horses, Nick, so um, I wouldn't uh, insult people by giving them a, a tip on the uh, on the Melbourne Cup. But just to, I just want to finish off. I think what uh, Richard said regarding um, where, you know, the share market and, and property and the balance, but I think what defined the, the, the recession of the 80s and 90s is that, unfortunately... Um, when the property market um, boomed and rates continued to rise, eventually, and the market did did fall quite substantially, uh, we did see that that very very strong recession that lasted for you know a number of years. And while the price always does come back, I, I would say whether whether it's in two years, three years, or four years, it might even be five years out, there is going to be a significant short term correction. 
which will hurt a lot of people. And um, uh, unless the Reserve Bank has worked out some new ways of, um, you know, injecting money in the economy without driving inflation, I just don't see any way of avoiding that. So I do predict a short-term, a significant short-term adjustment, um, but in sort of three to five-year timeline. Okay. Ian, if, if, if I just jumped in, I don't reckon if you buy in the median price band of a suburb, sure. uh, I don't think those prices come back. But if the median price band in a suburb is, say, $800,000, if you pay 1.4 million for the house, yes. I think when you're up, up in the in in the most expensive houses in any given suburb, they come back. But yeah, sure. I don't think in that median price band, uh, yeah. I don't think those prices really ever fall. The ones that pay um, for the most expensive house in a suburb, yeah, that they they always have problems with rising interest rates and home loan rates. But then again. Think back to the, the late 80s when the government put a cap on home loan rates at 16%. If you're already an existing borrower, your financial institution couldn't charge you more than 16%. But there were still homeowners um, getting into the market paying 17, 18, 18 and a half percent. And those prices in those suburbs continue to rise. But you never want to have the most expensive house in a postcode. So long as you're in the median band, I don't think those prices ever fall. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Richard Rort uh, from Hamilton Murphy in Melbourne, uh, thank you very, very much for uh, your debut on Lunch Money. Uh, it was delayed, uh, but uh, it's fantastic. I really appreciate you making the effort to uh, share with us your wisdom and experience. Um, thank you very much, Ian, for once again. I don't know if this is your uh, third or fourth appearance, but thank you very much for uh, for sharing your uh, your experience and wisdom. And uh, always very interesting to hear what what you have to say both about property and equipment prices. Uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much to those of you who have been watching live. The good news is that uh, our staff are back in the office. So if uh, if I owe you a lunch money mug. Uh, the lunch money mug is on its way to you. Uh, Darren Anderson, uh, the the uh, the book collection is on its way to you as well. And um, uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast or if you're watching it later, do us a favour, uh, share, like or subscribe um, so that you get a notification the next time we go live. Thank you very much. Uh, see you in a couple of weeks uh, when we do it all again. Cheers. <laughs>